0: Hi and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with Maris Kreitzman, who is the host of the Maris Review, which is a podcast about literature. Uh, She's also the author of uh, many articles, blogs, uh, a book called Slaughterhouse 90210, which is about the intersection of uh, literature and pop culture, something that I'm very interested in, high and low culture and the way that they intersect or, or reject one another. Maris, we talked about workers' rights. We talked about publishing paper books in a digital age. We talked about how you fight for other people or speak up for yourself. I I heard about Maris through her husband, Josh Gondelman, and then became a a legitimate fan, in my own right, of her own work, in its own right. And I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. As you know, this is Tea with Alice. I'm your host, Alice Fraser. If you're new to the podcast, I have difficult conversations with interesting people. I'm interested in the conversations that are not necessarily the easiest to have, where you're kind of trying to figure something out or talking about something tricky or... Any of those things, if you want to support this podcast or the work that I do otherwise, uh, patreon.com slash Fraser is the place to go. It's a one-stop shop for all of my stand-up specials, which you can get there for free, podcasts, blogs, and my weekly salons, uh, where we have a little chat ourselves, or... Writers' meetings. I'm running writers' meetings now with a workshop element. If you want to work on any of your work with me, patreon.com slash Fraser is the place to go for that. It's also now where I collect all of my what I'm doing because I don't trust uh, the social medias not to collapse any of those platforms. Otherwise, I'm on Twitter at alliterative or Instagram at alliterative while that lasts. But now um, Patreon is the is the central place where I'm putting everything I'll stop rambling and let you get on with listening to the podcast. Maris Kreitzman, you're having tea with Alice. So hi, welcome to the podcast, you're having tea with Alice. Who are you and what are you drinking? Hi, I'm Maris Kreitzman. I'm a writer and I, I
1: am drinking... Diet ginger ale, to which I will probably add
0: whiskey at, at some point in the night. <laughs> Excellent. Why do you choose diet ginger ale, and is it good with whiskey? I'm diabetic,
1: uh-huh. and have trouble sleeping at night. So if I want to have soda after dinner, then you know, can't be too
0: adventurous. Roll ginger ale better than the diet coke. <laughs> I feel like ginger ale is quite an adventurous. It's like a spicy drink. I feel like all spicy drinks are inherently a bit adventurous. Because it's hot, you know, it's like hot in your mouth. And the thing that you would do to solve hot in your mouth is drink something. But if what you're drinking is spicy, then you're like, <laughs> appetite for danger. Uh-huh. Okay. That's my <laughs> new perspective. And what have you been wrestling with recently? I have been watching the
1: workers at HarperCollins, the book publisher, go on strike. They've been on strike now. Today was the 50th day that they haven't heard from management. <sighs> I sold my first book of essays to Harper Collins. It's called, I Want to Burn This Place Down. And
0: um, <laughs> it really captures my feeling about this whole kind of situation. Oh, that's amazing. That's like 50 days of, of not having heard back is, is wild, especially in the context of all these strikes that are happening all over the world in so many industries. What's your perspective on it as somebody who's like written a whole book about this kind of thing?
1: I love the idea that we're learning to care about each other, that we realize that solidarity has to happen in multiple fields throughout the world if um, if we're going to make some good changes.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting, this idea of people as individuals. And it's a thing that's been sold to us recently so a lot a lot a lot and this idea that you you're yourself and you you have to look after you and you have to look after your family and that there's no you don't need anyone else you're if you're a if you're a rich man you're probably a self-made man that's the idea you're a self-made man you've made yourself you don't rely on anyone else this morning so today's uh, I've, I'm relaunching Tea with Alice this is season two of Tea with Alice I did 298 episodes and then I took a year off for maternity leave uh, not entirely in, intentionally but I I sort of didn't have a lot to talk about other than the baby and I I didn't have time to do the editing so what I've done now is I've booked in to do two or three recordings today and I had a babysitter booked and at seven thirty this morning she messaged me to say that she has tonsillitis and she can't wow. come and so you know you have to then I then there's this extended network of people who are affected by that and you know my dad was going to meet with somebody about a, a job and and all of this stuff. And then I'm like, dad, can you stay home and do this thing? And so that person who's talking to my dad about his job is like, well, he can't do his job today. And like, it's just this, we are so interlocked. And I think you can pretend that you're not, weirdly, in the way that we operate nowadays. You can sort of pretend that you're not because you've you've got this bubble around you, but maybe that bubble is wearing off. I mean,
1: I think with COVID, I even learned that it was better for me not to try to quote unquote power through that if I didn't feel well it would be better not just for me but for everyone if I stayed at home and there are implications to that um and it's
0: hard but it is uh, probably a good thing in the long run oh yeah that that if you don't if you don't look after yourself people can die that's the other thing you know And this is one of the things that I I have a family friend who's a GP and she uh, was originally working in emergency medicine back in the days when they used to make them do these brutal 36-hour shifts. And it was kind of this hazing thing for young doctors of just treat them as badly as possible. And that was how you've earned your stripes as a doctor, essentially being abused by the people above you. And she stopped doing emergency medicine, stopped doing all sorts of surgery uh, because she was at the end of like a very, 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 very long shift days in a row... A guy came in a motorcycle accident and she was trying to clear out the wound and like had a micro sleep and ended up sort of sucking up some brain, which is not on her.
1: We want our doctors to be at the peak of of their (laughs) level of physical skill. like don't yeah, we, we want to have them well-rested at all time. I think that's in everyone's best interest.
0: Yeah, that they should be well-rested, well-treated, that nurses, oh my goodness. And then you think about, uh, about child care and people looking after children and you think about what's good for children, which is to have parents who can take time away from their work to look after the children. Which people resent. I see so many people going, oh, businesses shouldn't bear that cost. Government shouldn't bear that cost. If you can't afford to have children, you shouldn't have children. And I think that's such a weird way to think about it because particularly for poorer people who have children, like who do you think is going to be wiping your ass when you're old? And do you want that person to be well-loved and (laughs) well-balanced? Like, you don't have to be like community minded to think we should treat people well. I mean,
1: the way we treat old people is a whole other conversation that uh, is terrifying. I just read Lynn Tillman's book Mother Care. And it's about the years when she was she and her sister shared primary health care for their ailing mother. And it's one of those things where of course people fear getting old. It sounds awful. There's nothing built in to, to help us, to uh, sustain us when when we've lost our faculties.
0: Yeah, well, I, I looked after my mum for many years. I, I talk about it in my show, Savage. And it's one of those things that's really peculiar because so many people are carers for the people around them. And it's not really part of the discourse at all. And it's sort of meant to be hidden or it's sort of meant to, you're almost meant to treat it like a sideline or a hobby. But if you're not doing it, and this is the thing, if if I'm not looking after my baby today, then the babysitter is looking after the baby. And if the babysitter is not looking after the baby, who is looking after the baby? <laughs> like if people aren't taking this burden of care on for their family members, what's, what do you think is going to happen? It's... Shocking.
1: I do also hope that post COVID or mid COVID, as we are, that 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 we've at least begun to have conversations about the work of mothers and um, how how valuable it is, or it should be, at least.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's a really interesting thing as as one now of just mm-hmm. what an interesting project it is. I've been thinking about this because I'm trying to write my show at the moment and uh, my solo show for the year. So in Australia and the UK, we tend to do one new hour a year and we tend to run it through these festivals and that's the pressure that drives the content production. So I have to have a new hour and obviously I'm going to have to talk about parenting because it's what I've spent 98% of my time doing for the last yeah. year. And, uh, but also I don't, I don't want to alienate people from the work like, I don't like just talking to, you know, I don't want to be like mums talking to mums because also I don't think that's necessarily... Like, that's that's one function of comedy is like community sort of strengthening. But another function of comedy and the one that I'm maybe more interested in as an artist is sort of opening up experiences to other people, making people feel more shared humanity rather than the jokes about who us is and who them is... Like, who, who we are. So how do I write a show that is about motherhood that's also about the 21-year-old man in the front row that he can connect with? And a part of what I'm thinking about in that, and I was sort of vaguely talking to uh, Josh about this, <laughs> yeah. is that we all have a responsibility. Not even a responsibility. The way that society operates is that we look after each other, that we parent each other, actually if you think about what being a parent is, which is this sort of painting on water process, you're you're having an impact, you're cre- helping create something, but you don't control it. But ideally, you know, the best kind of parenting Understand is where it. you help somebody become themselves, help them to face the worst part of themselves and, and to defeat it and become a better version of themselves. And with that, you do that with your child because it's your child and because you have more control. But you also do that with good friends or in intimate relationships that's sort of the point
1: I think. 100% and and I I think you can even extend that um I think about it in books but I think it very much applies to comedy like this is sometimes what we look to art for not all the time but like to get a better understanding of how other people live and see the world that's kind of amazing and beautiful <laughs>
0: Yeah, I always think about that um, when the representation chat comes round. You know, the, the you-can't-be-what-you-can't-see version of that chat and, and people say, oh, my daughter is, is Indian and she'd never seen an Indian comedian on stage before telling an Indian story or she'd never seen a, you know, my, my daughter is, is black and she'd never seen a black Disney princess before. Mm. And I think that's cool and great. But also for me, so much of reading books was about experiencing other lives that weren't my own. And maybe that's because I read a lot of like fantasy and sci fi and they tended to have male protagonists. But like, I want the Disney princess to be black for the 56 year old Disney head guy who has never seen a black Disney princess, who can't imagine what it would be like to be. You know, that, that, for me, that's what's really exciting about representation is getting to live in other people's worlds.
1: I think so too. I, I, I think, again, it's a little different with
0: books for some reason
1: because I think they're so fundamental to how you learn when you're young and I think that the default has been white for so long in so many places that it still feels new and exciting to hear these different voices, and um, we need to do better.
0: Yeah, yeah. The fact that it was like it was such a novelty reading the Earthsea Quartet as a fantasy reader and having non-white protagonists—that was that, that was so revolutionary when I was reading fantasy in the like nineties. And that feels too recent for that to be that revolutionary. And whether that was just that that was what my school library had chosen, or just that there wasn't that much out there being published, I don't I don't know. I could probably look into it, but yeah, that's a weird thing that it was a weird thing. Yeah, and and yeah, it, so I I
1: think seeing that kind of magnified out through so many different fields is overdue, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and I hope I hope it'll remind people that their experience is not the only one.
0: Yeah, I think part of the nice thing about this movement towards strikes and unionization and and work and anti-work culture and and that is that it can be so easy. One of the options when things are hard is to only look after yourself, to steal the lifeboat and be the only one on the lifeboat because it's hard to get a lifeboat. I, I feel like that's an urge and it's, we're so conscious of others, the selfishness of others, in the way that algorithms bring forward the selfishness of others, show us the selfishness of others because we'll be yeah. enraged or engaged by that. And I think that seeing this like benevolent impulse arise out of the cesspit that is social media over the last sort of 5, 10 years is a really beautiful thing and like a really reassuring thing and a really comforting thing. It makes me feel really, really positive and happy. I think. I,
1: I am a social media apologist even now. I mean, Twitter is a cesspool. Of course it is right now, but I
0: have such a nice time on Twitter, man. I've I've spent 10 years like curating a really nice feed with really nice people. And I see so little bullshit on it that when people are like, it's horrendous. I'm like, okay. I've met so many
1: people, including Josh, my husband, on Twitter. (laughs)
0: Amazing. And,
1: um, talk about getting to understand other people's points of view i can only imagine if when i was a teenager i had that capability in my bedroom to just hear what everybody across the country was saying about you know a variety of different things
0: yeah yeah it is incredible it's also terrifying but i think most incredible things are terrifying one way or another you operate in a very specific sort of subculture which is book culture yes what to you is the most interesting thing about that or the most sort of distinctive thing about that for you?
1: I've been doing it for about twenty years now. And distinctly right now is is the first time that I ever remember people not standing for being treated poorly. Like it was it was for sure one of those things. Like when I started my job at Simon and Schuster in the year two thousand and one. I knew that I was lucky yeah. uh, t- to be in this much sought after job that didn't pay very well at all and involved long hours and was cutthroat. And um, I am so excited to even just see people starting to imagine that, that things can be better. Uh, not to mention that I was able to take this job because I have parents who are able to send me groceries. (laughs) Like I, if I was totally taking care of myself, there was no way I would have been able to work in this industry. So I'm really excited about the idea that salaries will raise and um, more than that, 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 Entry-level people will not stand for being treated poorly
0: and hope that that widens things so much. So it's interesting. My dad uh, worked in copyright law enforcement. That sounds a terrible way to put it. He started a not-for-profit company that – business. I don't know, not-for-profit that took money from people who were photocopying. This is back in the 80s. Uh, and g- gave it to the people, to the rights holders. So if someone photocopied your book, you would get some money for that, and that was my dad's thing. Wow. Yeah, it was a it was a a good, I, I think a good thing to do, giving authors their their rights. But it meant that I was sort of I grew up around these kind of book people, and it was just constant. Everyone complaining that they weren't making money. <laughs> and you thought, you thought but how is nobody like the authors certainly aren't making any money. The publishers are always complaining that they're not making any money. Like who's making the money? Like there clearly is money. here. Alice. So I I think one of my other big
1: revelations over the past 10 years or so is, is the idea that so many people who love books get into the book industry because they love books and they're looking at books for entertainment and validation and, a lot of the books that make money, not all of them, but a lot of them, are meant to be products, are are meant to be a politician wants to run for president, and his pack will buy a few thousand copies of whatever book he writes, and that will help the corporation that publishes him, and that will help him. God, that's so depressing. And will it allow actual, you know, people who want to write for a living to write for a living? No. (laughs) But like, but um, it's scary how much we need them too. we we need those awful politicians writing their dumb books, um, just to keep the lights on so often. And I wish we could just value great writing from people who want to write primarily.
0: Well, the economics of art are always incredibly fascinating because nobody lives without it. No one can live without it. Of course. But this narrative of of the artist as sort of divinely inspired or somehow just a vessel for the art rather than a craftsperson means that you then, you know, you feel like an artist or there's this narrative that artists are just compelled to do their art and it sort of doesn't matter if you pay them because they'll starve themselves to death in a garret in order to produce their great work. And maybe that's true. Sometimes it's true. Yeah, maybe it's only (laughs) true of some artists. And maybe you're losing incredible voices who have an incredible novel in them, but also have three children and need to pay the bills.
1: I mean, I think back to your friend, The Doctor. Like, I think we all, so many of us will do better if the circumstances in which we are put are better. If we are set up to succeed,
0: we will be more likely to succeed. (laughs) Yeah, I always think of, of this when I see billionaires putting money into the space race of like, oh, the the big rich guys used to used to hire artists. Used to just put them up bed and board and and, and let them make their art. And also the great artists, the great, you know, the great hero artists of of our kind of history, the the Michelangelos and the Leonardos and um, just naming Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles at this point, but um <laughs> they had studios working for them they had assistants to fill in the sky and the grass and the and so they could t- focus on the hands or the eyes or the thing that was there their obsession like i don't think that o- often gets factored into the story that you tell
1: i think that's right and i i think that i've seen in the book world even small presses and literary magazines and a lot of other really lovely wonderful publications Um, often started by a very wealthy patron, but the problem with that now, at least, is that they can just change their mind. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I, I feel like the Medici's did not just like, say, eh, I've thought about it and I don't feel
0: like doing this anymore. (laughs) I mean, they probably did. Let's be honest, the cheese were not known for their uh, (laughs) stick-to-itiveness if they they got a a bit emotional. I imagine, like, a significant proportion of the job of the artists being supported by the cheese was arse-licking. Like, I'm pretty sure they had to be like, oh, what great eyebrows you have today. Like, (laughs) I'm sure that was – but, again, I, I would be happy to compliment somebody's eyebrows if it meant that I got to, like, chill out and take my time writing a show. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. One of the
1: other things I think about a lot is like, okay, so if this model is broken in terms of art versus commerce, especially for books, and if small presses have a really tough time making money and sustaining themselves and literary magazines can't stay in business, then like, what are our other alternatives? And I haven't seen many great answers. What I've seen that gives me the most hope is the website Defector. Oh, yes. Former Deadspin uh, workers who started their own company and um, are all partial owners in it. Oh, that's nice. And have figured out a way to, to actually survive and if they can do it, I hope more people can
0: well it proves that it can be done and I think it can I see be done. I see more and more people now sort of eschewing the idea of becoming world famous you know the idea of being and and for me as somebody who is in the public eye the idea of being very famous and I don't mean this as like a a block to being accused of failure or anything like that it looks like a fucking nightmare. Like it just looks awful. It looks like a really unpleasant experience. And my ambition was has never been to be famous. My ambition has always been to say interesting things or be be allowed to perform to enough people. But I think I'm in this like great I'm in this great bracket at the moment. This window of where most people who know me know me through my work. And I don't want to be actually more famous than that. The idea, like I have never watched a Kardashian show. I have strong opinions about Kardashian things. <laughs> it's been funny watching Josh, who I, I, I want
1: to believe is is pretty similar. Like he has fans who know his comedy and what he does and enjoy it. But I think he has a couple of friends at this point who can't walk down the street yeah, so stressful. It sounds incredibly stressful.
0: And the idea that somebody somebody could hate you just because someone they don't like likes you?
1: Or that they could
0: have, I mean,
1: I like a small
0: parasocial
1: relationship. Yes. Like I like, you know, a boutique parasocial relationship, yes. Absolutely. And, and, and it's me and like 5,000 other people who feel this way and not 5
0: million, you know, yes. that I, like i have I have on my patreon I have salons for this very specific reason, which is that I like to know that that I'm being supported by people, you know, like it's such a beautiful relationship to me that to like t- to let it get out of control or to not know who the people are who are doing that work to help me do my work would just seems a bit gross, or something not gross something there's something about it that just feels off, yeah. I think that's so cool, and I think it's that has to be rewarding
1: on both ends. Then,
0: I mean, it's great. A, it was great during the lockdown. B, it's great as a comedian because you very rarely get to talk to people who aren't comedians. And I, I, I actually like people. I quite enjoy people. There are some comedians who can't <laughs> talk to people, and that's why they do comedy because they can no. talk to an audience. <laughs> yeah, and that because yes. that's a that's are people they can control. And that's a much more safe-feeling way to talk to people than to talk to people one-on-one. But I, I actually like, I like people. So for me, it's really comforting and reassuring to think of the people in the audience as people rather than as subcategories of audience.
1: I am someone who, when I go to a comedy show, does not want to be interacted with. <laughs> yes. And um, I, I will you know, keep my head down, there is this other brand, especially of, of TikTok comedy, when the crowd work becomes such a big feature of the of the show that, one, not only does the comedian have to depend on the reactions of, of audience members, but the audience members then have to be stars.
0: <laughs> yeah. to like... I think we are about two seconds away from having the camera turned on the audience which is its own sort of thing but it's a different sort of thing and I mean you can see how the incentives have aligned economically like if we're talking about economic systems because it takes a long time to work on a joke it takes a long time to get it to the point where you're happy with it and once it's out into the into the wild people don't laugh at the same joke twice very often some jokes are evergreen but they're rare and so you don't want to burn material by putting it out on the internet, but you're told that you need to have an internet presence, and that's often a better place to put your stuff out because maybe there's a hundred people in a room, but there's ten thousand people who'll see it if you put it out on TikTok. So you have these competing things of like, don't want to burn mm-hmm. a joke, do need to keep generating content, and the audience interaction is the way to do that because it's unique, it's in the room, and it can't, you know, it can't damage your material. Um, you're not burning material that you might then get paid to do later or that is not where you would like it to be because it's an open mic gig and you're still trying something out, or you can feel it's not quite where you would like it to be. So you can see how all of that happens. Yes. Yes. But the way that it is affecting what comedy is to people is odd because we went through a phase, right? When I started comedy, hecklers thought they were doing you a favor by heckling they thought that was part of the game it was sort of a combative thing it was very much from the working men's clubs sort of the vibe mm-hmm. was adversarial that there was a kind of you know and then I think in the last sort of 10 years particularly with festival comedy it's more more arty and there's that kind of side of it if people had started to realize a little bit that you don't go and heckle that's rude somebody spent a long time <laughs> working on these jokes uh, they'll probably be funnier than you will, um, but this TikTok kind of short form audience interaction clip, I think will encourage people to think that they're doing you a favor again. I don't, I don't, there's no positive or negative about it. I am just not as good at crowd work as some of these people are, so I resent it. But. And I'm not as good at being in a crowd as some of these people are, so from the other perspective... Yeah, I find that quite... I think for me in an audience, I would find that very stressful. So for me, I don't talk to my audience in that way. Like I don't attack my audience. I'm not an insult comic and equally... I don't even call on my audience very much. I'll occasionally ask before a show if somebody is happy to be pointed at like 45 minutes into the show because there there might be a joke that I've scripted that needs me to point a finger at somebody. Um, But even then, I don't like to point a finger at somebody who might then be made uncomfortable, even if it's sort of not personal at all. I had this experience with Savage where I was doing a sh- this show and I, was ta- I asked, it was about mothers, and I talked about people whose mothers are too much, um, people whose mothers are like really intense and they're always texting them and calling them and asking them about their boyfriend and bringing food around because my grandmother was like that. Um, but my mum wasn't like that. And so I ask if there's anyone in the audience who's like that. And I say, like, I get that that's a problem. I get that that's frustrating. And like, but also, fuck your problem. (laughs) Because my mom didn't have the energy to be that kind of mom. And for me, that sounds like, oh, I got a blister from my yacht. It's a very short form version of that joke. But (laughs) the the point was, A, it wasn't personal to anyone in the audience. I asked for volunteers and I would just do this joke and whoever put up their hand up I'd end up being like, yeah, fuck your problem and it didn't matter who they were. Uh, but a guy who had put his hand up sent me a very upset email and say, basically saying that I'd sort of humiliated him in front of the audience. And I don't think I'd realised until that point how much in the spotlight audience interaction makes the audience member feel. They suddenly feel like you've dragged them up on stage. And even though that joke was not a direct attack on him, I don't think it was even particularly mean to his category of person, which is moms, <laughs> people whose mums care about them too much. Like I, I, mm-hmm. But he felt so exposed by it that it was a real like salutary lesson for me in like, yeah, be careful about pulling people up from the audience. If you don't want to run the risk of making people feel upset, or unhappy which some comedians are happy to do some, yes of course I am just conflict averse always so. like <laughs> <laughs> I, don't get, don't so get me wrong fun. I know there are some people who are offended by like me being a woman on stage talking and they can go fuck themselves like if if I'm causing offense and hurt by something like that I think some principles deserve to be offended but you know I don't want to make a perfectly harmless person feel bad about themselves the the worst
1: I've seen in New York comedy clubs is the. Anytime you have to ask, like, you two together, how long have you been dating? <laughs> and, and, because it just allows for no nuance <laughs> in a specific relationship.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, um, it's uncomfortable and weird if you're like hanging out with your cousin or your brother or your friend or <laughs> an ex or your father or just, it, oh, oh, the worst. Yeah. The worst. And also what, what, what joke are you getting into? Like what's the, <laughs> what's, I mean, as a setup, are you two together? Like, does it matter? Like, like how can, how is that your only way to get to the joke you're aiming for? I
1: think. I feel like the the end of that joke is
0: something like, Women be shopping. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was like, I'll tell you what it reminds me of. It reminds me of bad burlesque. And like, of all the genres of live performance, I think bad burlesque is the most uncomfortable to watch because it adds this kind of element of of, of sexual humiliation to <laughs> the, the, the on stage not working humiliation. I think bad improv is very bad. And bad burlesque is worse. And, like, not the good burlesque isn't astonishing and incredible and amazing, but just if you see, it's like, ah, oh, it's so, it just, ah, oh, there's like a little bit inside you that folds into itself when you watch bad burlesque. And I feel like it, that's the same feeling I have when someone's like, are you together? And the couple goes, no. <laughs> And then the comedian like barrels on with like, oh, maybe, but maybe you are, like maybe something's going on here. And you're just like, ah, ah, like, oh. it, like this physically tense. Please it's like a, no. It's a little homunculus that lives just in under your diaphragm, uh, below your <laughs> ribs, who like does yeah. crunches every time that particular <laughs> kind of comedy happens. I, ca- I just can't stand it. I don't know. I don't feel that passionate about other bad art, I think. I think that's right.
1: Well, I guess I think anytime there's an audience, there they, it feels different, as opposed to like if you've written a book that's very silly. At least you can't keep track of what people are thinking yeah. when when they're when they're reading it, unless unless you look at Goodreads, which no author should ever do anyway. But all
0: authors do, obviously. Oh yes. I no longer read my reviews, but there was an overlap of about or oh, two years where I said I didn't read my reviews, but I did.
1: I have to believe that you are not alone, that like 50% at least of the people who say they don't read their reviews take a little peek every now and then.
0: Yeah. You know? And yeah. uh, now I have it, and now I have it dialed in, like it took a little calibrating, but now, and this is like the most wanky thing. I just say, because usually you have like a producer or something on your show and they put up your nice reviews onto your posters. In the context of a festival, getting those stripes of five stars and four stars is part of the marketing, ongoing marketing in the festival. And it also tells your fellow comedians that you're doing well or you're having a banger of a run, the number of reviews and the number of good reviews. All of that stuff is, is quite important and it's part of the process. And so at the beginning of the festival, your producer will say, would you like to know when reviewers are in? Uh, And would you like to know when the review is out? And I always say I would like to know when the reviewer is in because this has never happened but I have an idea in my head that one night the show will be going badly and I'll just kick the stage over and walk out. Like I'll just be like, fuck this. Uh, But if a reviewer were in and I knew it, I might not. Even though that... That situation wow. has never happened um, <laughs> in my head. I'm like, oh, yes, let me know when the reviewer is in. In case, like, I start spewing or something. I don't know. Like, I don't know what's in my head. But, yes, but also don't send me the reviews unless they're more than four stars. And even then, I get annoyed by them. <laughs> like, why not five stars? <laughs> well, it's like, if they're badly spelled or they've missed the point of the show or they, mm. like, or they do that thing where they quote a joke but they've got the rhythm off or the wording off of the joke well they've missed yeah it just I find it so enraging um so so now I don't read them I just note that I've gotten the stars but yeah it took me a long <laughs> time to get to that point and I don't think you're a bad person if you don't have the strength not to read reviews
1: absolutely I think I have a few friends who have put out many books and um I think you're right. If, if there's someone you're working with who you trust to um, filter your reviews for you, that's that's probably the best possible way.
0: Yeah, I do it with social media too. If, I've, if I go on television or I have a spot that goes out on television, I just get someone to filter my social media for, for me for the next day or so because usually, you know, and even then it's not like people are mean to me. But there's, you might read a thousand positive comments of one that just says you're horrendous, and that's the one that'll stick and niggle in your head, always, every always, every time. So it just, it's just not worth it for me anymore. And I don't know whether that's just getting old or, or what. But that's a very hard one. That.
1: Congratulations! Thanks. Thank you.
0: I I feel really good about it, and I also know that I like I can't trust myself, so like I literally give my like login password to somebody else for three days. (laughs) That's smart. smart. You got to work with the brain you have. That's my my New Year's resolution for the last couple of years is to stop trying to fix the brain that I have. Well, not stop trying to fix it. That's an ongoing project on the side. Sure. Uh, (laughs) But stop wishing I had a different brain and just work with the brain that I have, if you know what I mean. I sure do. So you're like, I can't trust myself with this let's bring in some help or whatever absolutely and and i do think part of aging is just
1: learning what you do and don't excel at in that regard
0: and 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 learning to make other plans <laughs> yeah it's like that, that um you know you're the rider on the elephant thing uh you, you start to learn the ways of the elephant you're like okay <laughs> This elephant's going to do what it's going to do, and I, I am, there's only some things that I can control. Uh, so I'm going to, you know, not go past that banana bush when I'm on my way to the river <laughs> or whatever. I don't know. I don't know no, that much was. about elephants. I love elephants, but I don't know very much about them. I've only met a few elephants in my life. Same. And they're quite, they're quite chill as a general rule. But then I think I've mostly met Indian elephants the ones that mm. don't try to rip your head off. African elephants are quite more angry, apparently. Yes. Have Have you met many elephants in your life? I'm
1: going to wrap this up soon, sorry. I feel like now I'm trying to remember. I mean, not as many as I, I wish to. I believe I, I rode an elephant once when I was... Um, A child at like you know some some fairs have ponies and here is a little elephant to ride and um that was cool as hell yeah (laughs) but um but uh yeah not enough I have to say yeah
0: maybe that should be your project
1: I think that's a great project um Particularly because it's a genre of thing I love to watch videos of online, for sure. Elephants are always doing crazy
0: things. Oh, the genre of elephants rather than the genre of like, meet more elephants. I need to meet more elephants, make a documentary about No, it. just like,
1: oh, well, that too. But no, just like an elephant being uh,
0: rambunctious. <laughs> I, I love that as a genre, the, the genre of I want to do a thing and so I'm going to make a project about it because that's sort of halfway between like really noble and also you can just do things you like. You don't have to turn them into work. I live in a world where I'm constantly suspicious of my own need to be productive at all times. I can't relate at all. (laughs) 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 So where can people find you and support your work, Maris? You can find
1: me on Twitter at Maris Kreisman. Um, And I host a
0: podcast
1: called The Maris Review. Uh, in which I talk to a different author each week about a new book that's out and uh, you
0: can find that wherever you get your podcasts and uh, yeah I recommend following you on on Twitter and also listening to your podcast Uh, it's a lot of fun it's not just fun, it's really interesting I enjoy uh, listening to it I wish I had more time to listen to things. More listening to things and more elephants this year, I think, is my plan.
1: I think you could work on
0: both of them. Thank you for having tea with me.
1: Oh, what a pleasure,
0: Alice. Thank
1: you for having me. Oh, do you know, or oh, do you not? This stuff is mistress that we have got. Thompson it is her name and she helps the dog at every frame Lu you rifle doll I'll doll